A brief warning to some listeners, this episode does contain descriptions of genocide, ethnic cleansing, and open warfare that some people may consider to be offensive or unnerving. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the episode. Sub-Saharan Africa, 1997. The ethnic conflict between two rival groups comes to a bloody head on the borders of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, Uganda, and Burundi, and militias begin to clash. The governments of the countries where the battles are being fought take notice and send military to assist their countrymen who are on both sides of the conflict, leading to an open war. These countries call for aid from their allies who come to help. And before you know it, nine African countries and countless militia groups are fighting. Alliances are breaking down and reforming. Thousands of lives are being lost and all in all, it's... It's... It's really confusing. Hello and hello. Welcome to the podcast. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I am Tanner and I'm talking about stuff that happened. Today we are tackling probably the biggest subject I have tackled up to this point. It's going to be really intense, so let's just get right into it. But before we do, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop a five-star review. Maybe even leave me something nice to say. Not only will it get more people involved with the conversations about history and listening to this podcast, but it will also give me an ego boost, and there's nothing wrong with that. So, you know what? Let's just get on with the show. Okay, so like I just said, this conflict is one of the most complicated conflicts, not just that I've covered on this podcast, but in history. So I'm going to actively try to simplify it as much as possible, and I'm not going to be able to get every single detail in, obviously, but I'm going to do my best to humanize the conflict and keep it interesting for all of you lovely, beautiful listeners. So let's break down the big ideas of this conflict. Uh, There are three big ideas to understand before we dive into the intricacies of this story. So big idea number one, This conflict is a direct result of European colonialism dividing territories arbitrarily with no regard to ethnic boundaries. That will come up a lot when you talk about conflicts in the world, uh, particularly in third or second world countries because of colonialism. Big idea number two. This conflict is a direct result of the strife between two main ethnic groups, the Tutsi and the Hutu. You gotta remember those two. They are central throughout the entire story. And big idea number three, this conflict is almost always forgotten in Western society because it did not cause any dramatic shifts to Western politics, though it changed the political landscape of nearly all sub-Saharan Africa. So this event has so many intertwining issues surrounding it. So where do we start? So I contemplated this a lot. Where do we start this story? So to get the full story, we have got to start all the way back in the year 1870. I know this takes place in the 90s and the early 2000s, but we got to go all the way back. Hold on to your hats, folks. It's going to be a bumpy ride. We're stepping into the time machine. And here we are. It is 1870 and Europe is ablaze with the fires of glorious imperialism. Seven countries are eager to stake their claim on the fresh, unadulterated land of beautiful Africa, and they set about doing, well, exactly that. In 44 years, by 1914, 
90% of Africa is claimed by Spain, France, Germany, Belgium, Italy, Portugal, and, of course, Great Britain. These claims are divided by the leaders of these respective empires according to who was there first, and the Europeans set about exploiting their new imperial African subjects for all they've got. It was a dark time for Africa, but fortunately this particular dark time won't last very long. As native Africans begin pushing for independence as early as 1910, and by 1980, all of Africa is under non-European rule. But this scramble for Africa, as it would come to be remembered, left a deeply wounding effect on the African geopolitical landscape. Remember how I said that the claims are divided by the leaders of these respective empires according to who was there first? Well, because these European leaders didn't consider African people as civilized, quote, quote unquote, civilized, they didn't take into consideration the pre-established boundaries that many ethnic African tribes and societies had already created centuries beforehand. In Africa, there are dozens of various ethnic groups with roots dating back hundreds, if not thousands of years, and these ethnic groups had their own borders, their own systems of government, and their own way of life. When the Europeans came along, they instituted new borders, new systems of government, and an entirely new way of life to the Africans. I mean, in half a century, the entire African stasis shifted in a manner too rapid for easy adjustment. And to add to this, half a century later, most of these African nations had achieved independence from European control. And where does that leave us? Well, that leaves us with... Dozens of ethnic groups no longer fighting against a common enemy, united inside borders that they didn't want, each having their own interests in play, and each desiring control over the governing body of these new areas. Now, this ethnic strife is going to lead to some tragic events in Sudan and Uganda, where hundreds of thousands of people belonging to ethnic minorities are systematically exterminated on more than one occasion. And in the 1970s, a small country of the name of Burundi joins this list. And this is where our story is about to begin. So prior to 1962, the countries of Rwanda and Burundi are one country, aptly named Rwanda-Urundi. And in this area, there are two leading ethnic factions. Their names are the Tutsi and the Hutu. These two factions are central to the story of this war. Like I said, remember those names. From the 1600s, the Tutsis had controlled the ruling body of the areas around Rwanda and Burundi, and in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the Tutsis were favored by the colonizers due to their influence over the people. And because of this, the Tutsis had acquired many positions of leadership when their countries gained independence, but the Hutus remained a lower class, despite making up 86% of the population, with the Tutsis only compromising 13-14%. to 14%. As a result... Hutus had centuries of generational resentment toward the Tutsis built up, and, and as the Tutsis continued to assert their dominance over the Hutus, the Hutus plotted a vengeful and bloody retribution. On April 29, 1972, the Hutus launched a countrywide uprising against the Tutsis, aided by exiled elements from their western neighbor, Zaire, the present-day Democratic Republic of Congo. These Zairans were exiled from the country due to a failed militant uprising of their own, and they saw the Hutu revolt as a way to fight their way into positions of power again. 
Almost immediately, the uprising was a failure, rapidly devolving into disorganized attacks on military positions and a foiled attempt to hold a radio station. And less than three days after the uprising began, Tutsi-led military forces began staging organized attacks on the rebels, capturing and killing any they found. By May 10th, not even two weeks after the uprising started, the Burundian government declared that the uprising was effectively crushed. But the Tutsis believed they needed to send a message for any future uprisings. Immediately after the uprising began, the Tutsis realized who were the perpetrators, and the few Hutus who had made it into positions of leadership were rounded up, questioned, and killed. Next, any Hutu officers in the Burundian government were purged, along with any Hutu soldiers. The Burundian government admitted to the killings of these Hutus in a statement that all perpetrators of the rebellion in the ranks of the Burundian army were being arrested, tried, and executed, though none of these Hutus ever had a public trial. That same month, foreign journalists were banned from entering the country. In the wake of the uprising, the Burundian government was dissolved and substantial confusion took over. New ministers were appointed arbitrarily and immediately began organizing more persecution of the Hutus. At the National University, Tutsi students began murdering their Hutu classmates before the military stepped in and arrested all educated Hutus on campus, taking them away, never to be seen again. After this, the military was then sent to the countryside, where Hutus were rounded up en masse, accused of plotting against the government, arrested, and executed. It wasn't until mid-June that the worst of the killings finally subsided, and it's estimated that between 100,000 and 150,000 Hutus and sympathetic Tutsis were murdered in the Burundian genocide, locally known as the Ikaza, which means the Scourge. Because of this, thousands of Hutus fled into the neighboring countries of Rwanda, Tanzania, and Zaire, escaping the hellish situation in Burundi during the killings. And the Tutsis had secured all positions of government for decades to come. But while the Tutsis had affirmed their control of Burundi, the Hutus in Rwanda, just north of Burundi, took notice of what had just taken place. Still compromising over three-quarters of the population of Rwanda, the Hutus knew they had the power to overthrow the Tutsis if they so desired, but an organized war was out of the question because the Tutsis were the ones in control of the military. But a glimmer of hope for the Hutus was seen when Juvenal Habyamara was elected the second president of Rwanda in 1973, where he would remain until 1994. His presidency saw economic prosperity in the nation, and his presence in the office caused a movement among Hutus for ethnic pride, now remembered as the Hutu power movement. It's now known that Habyamarina was actually feeding anti-Tutsi propaganda to the public, though while doing this, he allowed many Tutsis to be in his government, something that more extremist Hutus were wary of. Many of these more extremist Tutsis were living in Rwanda's northern neighbor, Uganda, at the time, and they didn't like seeing Hutus and Tutsis intermingling in Rwanda, and with Habyamarina's anti-Tutsi rhetoric permeating the airwaves of the country, the Tutsis in Uganda decided to militarize. In the 1980s, an organization known as the Rwandan Patriotic Front, led by Tutsis, was organized in Uganda. And in 1990, while the president of Uganda and President Habya Marina were in New York City at the United Nations Summit, 
2,500 members of the Rwandan Patriotic Front crossed the border between Uganda and Rwanda and began marching on Kigali, Rwanda's capital, with the intent of overthrowing Habya Marina and instituting a strictly Tutsi regime. But that wasn't going to be so easy. What followed that invasion was a two-year guerrilla war between the Rwandan army and the RPF, costing thousands of lives and even involving the French military at one point. Hooray for neo-colonialism. But in 1992, a ceasefire was signed and peace talks began, only to break down six months later as the RPF still felt Habya Marina wouldn't take a firm stance against his own anti-Tutsi rhetoric. The country was in turmoil, and by February of 1993, the RPF was within 20 miles of Kigali, with an army of 20,000 now on the horizon. It wasn't looking good for Habya Marina's government, but in a surprise move, the RPF declared a ceasefire before attacking the city, coming to the negotiating table again. Several months of negotiations followed before an uneasy peace deal was signed in August of 1993, but unrest was imminent. In October of 1993, the first Hutu president of Burundi was assassinated by Tutsi army officers, and a civil war broke out in the country with more mass killings taking place perpetrated by Hutus and Tutsis across the country. In response to this, a closeted plan by the Coalition for the Defense of the Republic an extremist Hutu party in Rwanda that they called a final solution was brought to light. Final solution. Sound familiar? Ethnic tensions in Rwanda had been rising since the outbreak of the war. Even though Habya Marina was a Hutu, the more extreme Hutus in the populace in the CDR didn't like him working so closely with the Tutsis and negotiating with the RPF while also pushing anti-Tutsi rhetoric. Which side was he on? They felt the Tutsi minority had oppressed them for long enough, and it was only a matter of time before... April 6, 1994, Juvenal Habya Marina's presidential jet was shot down as it prepared to land in Kigali by RPF soldiers. And immediately, the city descended into turmoil, with ethnic tensions at an all-time high, a power vacuum was inevitable, and everyone knew that it was usually tradition for a Tutsi to take power. But the extremists of the Hutus refused to let that happen. Initially, foreign nationals in Rwanda protecting moderate leaders were targeted by Rwandan soldiers and militia. Several Belgian peacekeepers were attacked and abducted. The French immediately pulled their troops out of the country because they knew the situation was rapidly destabilizing. And at this point, mere hours after the death of the president, did the full scale of the planning of this final solution become apparent. Local leaders assumed control of their Hutu populations who had been intentionally armed by the government in the months leading up to this inevitable event. A call was sent out to all Hutu in the nation, quote, Begin your work. Spare no one. And I will spare you the grisliest details of what transpired for the next few months as the Hutus exacted their revenge on the Tutsis who had oppressed them for generations. But in the end... Lower estimates gauge that 200,000 Tutsis were killed, while the highest estimates lie around 800,000 deaths of not just Tutsis, 
but also more moderate Hutus as well as 10,000 Batwa, an extreme minority in the nation. And after a hundred days of murder, the RPF, still led by Tutsis and had been in hiding throughout the genocide, attacked the government facilities which were still in disarray due to the massacres and quickly established control of the country. It was the end of the Rwandan genocide. Fearing reprisals for the genocide, two million Hutus fled across the border to neighboring Zaire as the RPF took power in Rwanda. And this created a phenomenon known as a diaspora. Time for a definition. What is a diaspora? A diaspora is a scattered population whose origin lies in a separate geographic locale, often owing it to a refugee crisis. For instance, Adolf Hitler's crackdown in Nazi Germany led to a German diaspora as at-risk residents of Germany fled the country. The movement of Africans across the globe with the European slave trade created the African diaspora. Also, the Irish leaving Ireland during the potato famine, Italians leaving Italy during the rise of fascism in the 1920s and 30s, Armenians leaving the Ottoman Empire during the Armenian Genocide, and Palestinians leaving Palestine during the Arab Exodus of 1948. Because of these events, people of these ethnicities still subscribe to the cultures and belief systems of their homeland, but no longer live there. And this is what happened to the Tutsis and the Hutus after the events in Rwanda and Burundi. The sudden influx of refugees caused a disastrous refugee crisis in all countries affected, characterized by starvation, disease, overcrowded camps, and eventually militarization. Because in response to the abhorrent living conditions, Hutu militias began forming in Zaire with the intent of raiding nearby villages, in many of which the Tutsi held the majority for food and water. So here we are now. It is 1996. Genocides in Rwanda and Burundi have finally ceased but have left the region devastated. The Tutsi-led RPF is in control of Rwanda, there are millions of refugees in Zaire and Tanzania, and not enough food, water, or medicine to go around, causing Hutu refugees to militarize and begin conducting raids on Tutsis in Zaire. This is where it starts to get complicated. Alright, so at this point, Uganda and Rwanda are allies both being led by Tutsi-dominated political parties. But Zaire is unfriendly to both of them. I mean, in fact, Zaire is kind of unfriendly to everyone. The dictator of the nation, Mobutu Sese Seko, was obviously corrupt and inept at leadership, with the economy of Zaire crumbling and leadership lacking in basically every facet of politics. The surrounding countries are taking notice of this, and when the RPF and Ugandan military sees the Hutu refugees attacking Tutsis in Zaire, they start shipping weapons into the country illegally to assist the Tutsis in fighting off the Hutu militias. If you remember, Tutsis control the Ugandan and Rwandan governments. And this secret and illegal arms trade is quickly discovered by Mobutu. And things basically just go south from there. Mobutu was stubborn and he didn't like the idea of foreign countries shipping illegal guns into his country to fund militia groups, so he decided the most logical course of action is to fund the other side of the militia groups, even though they are also illegal. So when the Rwandan government and the Ugandan government learn of this arms trade happening, they decide they can't let this spiral out of control, so they make it spiral out of control in their own way. And in November of 1996, Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi invade Zaire with varied intentions. While the countries were not fans of Mobutu, 
It's also likely that they were all attempting to quell the unrest happening in the country that was targeting the Tutsi population and to repatriate some of the refugees that had fled their countries, whose workforces were now very depleted due to the ethnic cleansing and the flight of refugees from their nations, which, you know, was their fault. But anyway. A militia group in Zaire had been kidnapping and killing Ugandans for ransom for years, and another group had been crossing the Rwandan border to raid, so it's also possible that this invasion was an excuse to suppress these groups. But in any case, a fascinating development takes place at this point. When the Tutsi militias and the Hutu militias see the invasion of Zaire happening, a summit takes place between their leaders. And in a stunning and moving turn of events, the Tutsis and Hutus decide to put their differences aside and ally to fight alongside the invasion force to topple Mobutu. And it works. Within six months of the initial invasion, the coalition of militias now calling themselves the Alliance of Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Congo Zaire, or the AFDL, had joined up with the armed forces of Rwanda, Uganda, and Burundi on their march to the capital of Zaire, Kinshasa. Now, six months after the outbreak of open warfare, a series of African countries who were avidly against Mobutu's reign have recognized the benefits of a potential topple of Mobutu, and they offer to assist in the overthrow. And the coalition of militias and armies are accompanied by a battalion from Eritrea and troops from Ethiopia, South Sudan, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. Mobutu's military was deeply unprepared for such an invasion force, and soon, most of the country was under rebel control, with only pockets of resistance around the capital of Kinshasa and a small western segment of the country still under Mobutu's control. But Mobutu remained stubborn, and the coalition planned for an all-out assault when suddenly, Zaire's southwestern neighbor, Angola, surprised everyone and joined in the fray against Mobutu flooding the small segment of Zaire still controlled by Mobutu with Angolan soldiers. It was over. Within days, Mobutu fled to Morocco, and he died months later of a terminal illness he'd hidden from the public. The war seemed to be effectively over, with Mobutu out of the picture and a new democratic government expected to rise in its wake. A leader of the AFDL named Laurent Desiré Kabila, sponsored by Rwanda and Uganda, declared himself the new president and immediately changed the name of Zaire to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Sub-Saharan Africa settled down, hopeful for a new age of prosperity in the region. Unfortunately, it wasn't going to go that way. Rwanda and Uganda were hoping that the Democratic Republic of Congo would be something of a puppet state for them, and left a number of Rwandan and Ugandan nationals in the country after the overthrow of Mobutu. At first, Kabila was grateful to have their support, but after a year of governance, the Congolese populace was starting to grow suspicious of the amount of foreign advisors Kabila had in his government and military. On top of that, most of the advisors were Tutsi, and remember how two million Hutus had fled Rwanda to former Zaire? Well, even though Rwanda had repatriated many of them, there was still a large group of Hutus who were fearful of the repression more Tutsis in power could bring, so unrest was starting to brew. After one year of governance, Kabila unceremoniously demanded that all Rwandan and Ugandan soldiers return to their respective countries immediately. He even charted their own planes for them, which they were forced to board. And within 24 hours, all Rwandan and Ugandan military advisors 
were out of the country. While Kabila did this in an attempt to win back the support of the Hutus, the pendulum swung too far, and the Tutsis in the eastern regions of the DRC were now nervous about their own predicament. The Hutus had stopped harassing them when Kabila came to power, and now that he seemed to be cutting ties with the Tutsis, they worried the violence was going to begin again, and their fears were well-founded. Within only weeks, Hutu militias who had fought alongside the Tutsis barely a year earlier to topple Mobutu were mobilizing against them again, preparing for further ethnic violence. Tensions reached a breaking point when the Tutsis discovered that Kabila was actually funding and arming these other militia groups. But this time, they would not be caught with their pants down. In August of 1998, in response to Kabila's sudden turn against them, the Tutsis in eastern Congo launched their own daring attack against the government, forming a formidable and well-equipped rebel group called the Rally for Congolese Democracy, or the RCD. Immediately, Rwanda reached out to the RCD, offering assistance for the revolution, and began moving troops into the Congo. Simultaneously, Burundi took the opportunity to occupy areas of eastern Congo as well. Kabila mobilized his troops to the eastern regions of the DRC, and the war was on again, and it was looking nastier than before. Within days of the outbreak of open warfare, the RCD launched a daring assault that knocked Kabila's forces off balance entirely. Instead of a frontal assault, the RCD hijacked four Boeing jets, two 727s and two 707s, from an airbase they captured on the far eastern reaches of the DRC. They packed the jets way above capacity with highly trained and well-equipped militia fighters and flew across the DRC to the western end of the country, at an airbase near the city of Katona, which sat less than 400 miles from the country's capital of Kinshasa. This plan was aptly named Operation Katona. Kabila had neglected the western portion of the DRC with his military, believing his enemies were only capable of a frontal assault and the Congolese troops stationed at Katona were ill-trained, ill-equipped, and understaffed. Upon the arrival of the RCD's troops, most of the soldiers either surrendered or defected, joining the invading forces' ranks instead of resigning to torture and death. Operation Katona was initially an enormous success, as the army that took Katona reached numbers of almost 5,000 soldiers who were intending to march on Kinshasa. Less than a week later, the RCD and Congolese rebels had taken control of the DRC's vital port of Matidi, cutting off a significant amount of international trade. Then, they captured the Inga Dams, which supplied all electricity to Kinshasa. With the success of the invading coalition in the east, as well as the taking of Katona Airport, the Matadi Port, and the Inga Dams, Kabila's hands were tied. His country was almost resolutely lost. In a matter of days, the RCD would be on his doorstep, and he knew he had to act fast. Suddenly, two African countries who had been watching this play out decided to take a side. Angola had sent troops to assist in overthrowing Mobutu, but their only goal was to overthrow the corrupt dictator, not to establish a new regime. They saw what Rwanda and Uganda were attempting to do in establishing a puppet government and decided it was in their best interest not to let that happen. 
Alongside them, Zimbabwe had allied with Kabila in the months leading up to the outbreak of warfare and took up arms with Angola to assist their desperate friend. Zimbabwe began sending armored vehicles to aid Kabila's troops and started providing air support for his beleaguered forces, stalling the RCD's advance to Kinshasa. Angola sent troops into the western provinces of the DRC to quell Operation Katona altogether, and after several fierce firefights, the RCD and the Congolese defectors boarded their stolen planes and flew back to the eastern sectors of the country, where fighting continued to heat up. Kinshasa was safe, and Operation Katona had been effectively foiled, but the war was only beginning. Now... The DRC was fighting alongside Angola and Zimbabwe against the regular armies of Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi, while also fighting numerous militias funded by these countries, chiefly the RCD, funded by Rwanda, and a new militia created and funded by Uganda, the Movement for the Liberation of Congo, or MLC. In response to the creation of these militias, a number of militias had sprung up in the Congo to fight the invaders off, including the Allied Democratic Forces, which is not to be confused with the Alliance of Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Congo, stay with me here, and the Lord's Resistance Army, a fundamentalist Christian cult led by the infamous Joseph Kony. Any of you remember Kony 2012? Also fighting in favor of the DRC was a culture of community that existed within the Congo where every small village had their own militia, which defended against the incoming threat. This made advancement extremely difficult for the forces invading the Congo. And this brings us to 1999. The conflict is complicated and bloody. With the violence escalating, three other countries suddenly pledged their aid to Kabila, Chad, Sudan, and Namibia. Chad and Sudan, familiar with the insurgencies that have come out of Uganda and Rwanda, sent troops to the front lines to aid in the fighting, and Namibia had vested significant economic hopes in the future of Congo after the overthrow of Mobutu, so they also sent troops and other personnel to aid in the conflict. So to lay this out in the simplest way, this was the DRC, Chad, Sudan, Namibia, Angola, Zimbabwe, and their various insurgencies, against Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, and their various insurgencies. And it was about to get worse. For the Rally for Congolese Democracy, the RCD, the initial goal had been pretty simple. Topple Kabila and establish a more pro-Rwanda regime. But after the failure of Operation Katona and the World War I deadlock style of fighting that was causing thousands of deaths began looking more and more permanent, the possibility of overthrowing Kabila seemed to get ever more distant, and the group began to fracture into factions over the next course of action. Over time, the RCD had been recruiting soldiers from Uganda as well as Rwanda, and now that the group was fracturing, some factions became more aligned with Uganda while the rest stayed allied strictly with Rwanda. The governments of the respective countries began only supplying the factions that supported their own nations, and eventually these factions began skirmishing with one another. Then, in November of 1999, the Uganda People's Defense Force and the Rwandan Patriotic Army, two former allies who had initially attacked the Congolese together, crossed swords and clashed along their border. And now, Uganda and Rwanda were fighting with one another while also fighting off a coalition of forces bent on stopping an attack they'd made together on an enemy nation. This was now a war being fought on three fronts with nine countries involved. 
other African nations began worrying just how far this was going to go. As the rest of the continent watched the destruction from afar, two famous leaders, Muammar Gaddafi of Libya and Nelson Mandela of South Africa, attempted to stage peace talks between the various factions and nations. While Rwanda and the RCD refused to take part, the rest of the nations and insurgent groups met and began negotiating. In April of 1999, as relations between Uganda and Rwanda began deteriorating, a ceasefire was signed between most of the main players in the war, and they prepared for further peace talks. This unsteady peace ensued in the year 2000, and the United Nations actually sent 5,500 troops to stabilize the situation in the country as the economic woes from the Mobutu administration were brought under control. And the people breathed a sigh of relief as the destruction of the conflict was lifted. If only for a moment. Only for a moment. In January of 2001, headlines shocked the country as Kabila was assassinated by his own bodyguard. This broke the tentative ceasefire in the war-torn nation and hostilities ensued once again. But hope was on the horizon. Kabila's son Joseph was the successor to his seat. Joseph was much younger and did not harbor the same resentment toward the DRC's enemies as his father did, having grown up during the conflict. Joseph simply wanted to see an end to it, and he took his chance in April of 2002, after the war had been raging for six years. The war effort of the coalition against the Congo was breaking down. Fighting off attacks from nations on all sides, Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi had exhausted their reserves of manpower and economics. When Joseph came to the table to negotiate, they agreed. In April of 2002, an initial ceasefire was signed. In July, Rwanda and the Congo signed a peace agreement, with a primary point being made that all Rwandan soldiers be removed from the Congo, and another that all Hutu militias, the same ones who had perpetrated the Rwandan genocide and further attacks on the Tutsis, be dismantled. In September, a peace deal was signed between the Congo and Uganda with similar points. And on October 5th, Rwanda announced that it had completed its withdrawal of troops from the Congo, and Uganda shortly followed suit. Militia groups began finally standing down. The Great African War was over, and at a painful loss of human life. Exact numbers are remarkably difficult to track down, but it's estimated that between 2 million and 5 million lives were lost due to the conflict, both in battle, in massacres, and to disease. And that's not counting the genocide. 2% of Congo's forests were completely destroyed because of the war. And as of 2020, the conflict between the Hutus and the Tutsis continues to claim lives on both sides in various countries. There is evidence to support the claim that Rwanda and Uganda have been funding Hutu rebel groups along their borders with the DRC to protect against more Tutsi incursions. The DRC has sued Rwanda and Uganda for this subversion more than once, but the court is still out on that verdict. The war has been over for 17 years as of the recording of this podcast, but the scars of such a destructive conflict are still felt all over Africa as nations still feel the tensions experienced due to it. So there's just one last question. Why has no one heard of it? There are a few answers for this. First, 
there was very little involvement in the fighting by Western countries. And if you live in a more westernized country, it didn't and doesn't have really anything to do with your people. Second, ties in with the first, there were no major effects on the politics of most world superpowers because of this war. And third, because of the conflict being so recent, it's difficult to see through the objective lens with which we attempt to see World War I, World War II, and other conflicts. And fourth, it was just really complicated. Adding to that, there were very few pitched battles in this war. Most of it was guerrilla warfare, and so there's no heroic stories based around a single battle or single battle that changed the course of the war. It was very guerrilla and hit and run, a lot of it. But the Great African War showed what real racism looks like on a nightmarish scale. With millions of lives lost because of it, it's a wonder that we don't learn more about it. The horror of this war is a scar on sub-Saharan Africa, and we must pray that the nations and individuals who experienced it never willingly allow such hatred to permeate their land ever again. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for the show this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. This was one of the most complex events I have ever covered on this podcast, and I hope to do more of these because I really am just learning so much about this. Again, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review, and if you want to enhance my ego, leave me something nice to read from you. I'll see you next week, and God bless, as always.